Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Welcome to World Weekly with me and Sylvain Chassani, the World News Editor. On the show this week, we'll be asking what lies ahead for the European Union as the bloc enters a year of political uncertainty. 2019 will be momentous, potentially historic. All the union's top jobs are up for grabs through the course of the year, notably the president of the European Central Bank in the fall, the European Commission and the European Council. Who and which countries will get these key jobs will be largely driven by political dynamics in EU elections in May. And meanwhile, the EU elections will also be a big test of support for populist forces. In less than 12 weeks, the UK is also scheduled to leave the Union, barring any surprise. Joining me on the line from Brussels is Alex Barker, the FT's Brussels Bureau Chief, and in the studio in London, Ben Hall, our Europe editor. Alex, you must sense some agitation in Brussels ahead of this potentially big year. It's a huge year, and it's once in a generation, really, in terms of the jobs fair, where all of them come up at the same time. It's usually not synchronised in this way. And setting aside even the political context, that in itself would really get this place into a lather. It will be a very complex negotiation that has to take in the politics from the European Parliament elections, the politics of who's up and down in the European Council, and also the kind of sense that there needs to be a transformation of sorts here without the usual tools that the EU would use maybe 20 years ago of a treaty change or a renewal through that way. So the personalities that come forward will be quite an important sign of how this place is changing or otherwise. A lot is going to hinge on how well the populist parties are going to do in the May elections. Many of them are Eurosceptic, or at the very least against further integration. What are your predictions and the implications for the bloc? Well, the kind of, if you call them anti-EU bloc, it's a bit too much of a compliment, really, because they don't really act as a bloc at the moment in the European Parliament. There's lots of people who are hostile to the EU, but they're not very good at coordinating. There's various kind of groupings. And at the moment, maybe a fifth of the Parliament has real issues with the European project and would want to see it unwound or taken apart or at least brought to a kind of minimal level where member states become much, much, much more important. You could see that rise significantly in many member states, anti-EU politicians are now in power. The mainstream centre-right and centre-left are struggling or very much in the doldrums in many countries. But even at the top end of the estimates of how anti-EU parties could do, they're always going to be a minority. It's going to be an opposition. And in the European Parliament, that tends to mean you don't have that much power. But it does have a huge effect on the mainstream pro-EU parties. For three decades, the centre-right and centre-left 
have had a majority, just those two groupings. That is probably going to come to an end. You'll have three or four party coalitions necessary to get through any legislation in the EU to approve the Commission president to do the day-to-day business of Brussels. And that will be much more complicated. It means buying off a lot more political interests. And in a way, if you want to see a template of what could happen, German politics is quite a good one because the AFD kind of appeared out of nowhere. They've not really got their hands on the levers of power, but they've made quite a big difference to the centre and how difficult it is to operate. Ben, what are you thinking in terms of balance of power, how this new dynamic is going to shift the traditional centre-left, centre-right balance of power in Europe? Well, I would agree with Alex that in sort of plain numerical terms, the populist anti-EU forces may not see a massive surge basically for the reason that in many countries they're already in first place or in very strong positions, so they won't see that much uplift. I think the big exception is clearly going to be Italy, where Matteo Salvini is expected to emerge as one of the really big winners and may even use his victory in European elections to actually bring down the coalition and go for fresh general election in Italy, but we'll see. I agree with Alex also that the fragmentation of political landscapes at an EU level and a national level just makes life a lot more complicated and pushes the centre sort of closer together with the risks, of course, that the only alternative to the centre, to the grand coalition, is the extremes. And that's obviously what those parties and those countries like the AFD in Germany are hoping. That's the narrative that they want. I think the populists won't do brilliantly in overall terms, but I think they will have the momentum coming out of these elections and if there's a fresh general election in Italy. And the question for me is, A, obviously, can they form some kind of vaguely coherent alliance in the European Parliament? But also, can they develop a kind of coherent agenda for changing the way the EU works if they want to return more powers to the nation state in what areas and how and when I think that will be the big question. We're already kind of seeing the pressure on national governments the pressure of these um, nationalistic sometimes nativist forces and you know this is going to impact EU policies where do you think it's going to be the most striking on immigration on eurozone reforms where do you think we'll see more of that pressure? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, they've already had a very big impact on immigration by essentially stymieing any EU efforts at a more coherent policy. On the Eurozone, they are perhaps less forceful than they were for the simple reason that the markets can always try and counteract any sort of populist moves, as you've seen in Italy, essentially, where market pressure, I think, did play a big part in pulling the Rome government a little bit back into line. I think you may start to see it on single market competition rules, for example. These are the things where you might start seeing the impact of the sort of nationalist debate on the mainstream parties and mainstream governments pushing for a more kind of protectionist agenda in the EU. So in that way, the nationalists can have an indirect effect on what's actually happening in terms of EU policymaking. What do you think, Alex? Do you think the so-called Brussels fudges that you've witnessed for many years, are they going to be more difficult to achieve? And are we seeing a shift to the right to more protectionist agenda? Well, for Brussels to make big leaps forward, there's always got to be a degree of trust. 
and the Eurozone crisis was a hot mess at times. But in the end, they emerged with much deeper integration, one of the biggest leaps in integration since the creation of the single market in terms of the banking union that was created. But the migration crisis, that hasn't happened. It's still very much working off the kind of same basis as it was pre-crisis. Of course, there have been improvements, but there's not been a big advance in terms of the integration of a truly European asylum system or truly European borders. And that's partly because there was a lack of trust and a big political divide between the anti-EU forces, the anti-immigration forces, and those who want to see a more common approach where there's much more burden sharing between countries. And after the election, I think either via the parliament and certainly through the European Council, where you're going to have a lot of more Eurosceptic leaders around the table, when issues like the EU's long-term budget come up, that question of trust, of solidarity, is going to make that negotiation extremely hard. And you have a trillion euro budget that needs to be decided with a lot of money running from west to east, a lot of grievances about the kind of unfinished business of the migration crisis. And it's going to be a very long and testy negotiation when they actually get down to it properly. And the Franco-German engine has always been the driving force in all this, in reaching a consensus. But now Macron's presidency is being shaken by the Gilets jaunes protest. The French president is very unpopular in Germany. Angela Merkel is deeply weakened. She has had to step down from the leadership of the CDU. Do you think that this Franco-German motto can still drive and insert some momentum into EU reforms going forward? It's going to be difficult to see much momentum this year, I would say, for all the reasons you've just suggested, unless, of course, Angela Merkel sees a chance to sort of seal her legacy in Europe with some bold move forward, although that seems pretty implausible. So I suspect in Paris, they're already looking to the Apres Merkel era and wondering who will prevail. Is it going to be Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, the new party leader? Is she a shoe in for the chancellorship? Or may there still be a challenge from the right of the CDU? I think how that plays out is still very unclear. I mean, the leadership election has left the party still pretty divided, including over issues like Europe. So I think a lot of that will depend once again on German domestic political developments. Macron has portrayed himself as the bulwark against populists. And now he's got Matteo Salvini in Italy, who is, you know, um, cozying up with Viktor Orban in Hungary. Was Macron's strategy to portray himself as the anti-populist candidate a good idea in the end? Um, of course, in the Elysee, they will say that it wasn't them who picked this fight. It was Salvini who picked the fight. But actually, of course, they readily accepted it. It served their interests. He clearly sees himself as the leader of the sort of pro-European liberal centrist generation. But he is on the down and Salvini is on the up. That makes it always going to be a challenging kind of competition. To be fair to Macron, I think... The way they look at it is, of course, a lot of this is about taking on Salvini and everything that he represents. Uh, but it's also about taking on Le Pen and everything that she represents. And Salvini and Le Pen are quite close and have quite similar worldviews. And that is probably his big threat domestically, certainly in this election cycle, uh, European election. But he's in such a weak position politically, it's hard to see how he could prevail in May's elections. And meanwhile, in Austria, we have this interesting experiment in Europe of a young 
pro-European leader, but also very conservative and very hardline on immigration and who's struck a deal with the far right. Do you think that could be the template going forward for the centre-right in Europe? Sebastian Kurz, yes, the, the 32-year-old Chancellor who has, as you said, formed a, a coalition government with the Freedom Party. I think a lot have already taken inspiration from him. If you look at Pablo Casado, the Spanish People's Party leader, centre-right, or Laurent Vauquier in France, they are both adopting pretty tough rhetoric on migration. Some people would say that they are simply aping the far right and they may end up just legitimising the far right, which of course may turn out to be the case in Austria too. So it can seem like an inspiration, but it may ultimately prove misguided. And Alex, meanwhile, the UK is leaving the EU. How disruptive is it going to be for the bloc? Has the bloc already turned the page? What do you think? Psychologically, certainly, they turned a page quite a long time ago. The EU has been operating as if the Brits were a kind of shadow force here for some time. They managed to maintain a degree of internal unity in the face of this kind of very complex, drawn-out business with the UK. But now it's coming to the crunch, and we're a few weeks away. The uncertainty is there. The closer you get to the people who spent their days negotiating Brexit, the more there is a desire to just get this done, to make sure the exit happens. There's more reluctance to see a kind of process where Britain could go into more elections or a referendum. But obviously that potential is there for something that is drawn out. The likelihood of an extension is very high. So March 29th being the date is seen here at least as very unlikely. And then suddenly you're moving towards the European election date, which is in May. If the Brexit process runs beyond that, it starts making things very complicated for the kind of political calculations they have, who's running where, which seats. And then, of course, if you get past July 1st, the new parliament comes in, the new groups need to be formed. They have this Haunt formula for working out who gets jobs compared to relative power and things. And if the Brits haven't held their election, that whole parliament might be undermined in terms of legal legitimacy. And it would be very hard for them to constitute themselves. So there's a lot of thinking to do if Brexit is going to grind on through 2019, that's for sure. It's going to be very messy. And if you add up the fact that the economic prospects do not look so great anymore, you know, all the clouds gathering, it makes a pretty tantalizing year. We'll be following all these developments very closely. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Alex Barker and Ben Hall. Till next week. Goodbye. I'm at the nail salon. I'm at the grocery store. I'm at the combination nail salon and grocery store. Wait, she's at the nail salon and the grocery store? I'm at the combination nail salon and grocery store. Groceries through Instacart delivered to my door. I don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store. 